All right. Well, hello and welcome to another podcast episode. I'm Adrian Bloom, and I'll be your host today. This week, we'll be talking with Michael Sicker, the president of the oil and gas division at Mitsubishi Heavy Industries America. And before we get started with the discussion, I'd like to remind you that you can share and subscribe to the podcast for more expert discussions on technology and trends. It's easy to do. Just click the subscribe button on iTunes or Blueberry. So now I'll start by asking Mike to introduce himself and his role at Mitsubishi. Mike? Sure, Adrian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Um, Yeah, so uh, April 1st, I assumed the role of president of our oil and gas group. Uh, That that division sits inside of the MHI America umbrella. And uh, just a quick note about MHI, we're a $38 billion company and uh, we, we definitely have, have a significant overseas presence. Um, you know, a little bit unusual for, for Japanese companies, but we have grown our, our market share significantly to where uh, more than half of our sales are now outside of the Japanese market. We're, uh, we're about halfway through our midterm uh, business plan and looking to continue that, that uh, globalization of our footprint overseas. So that's, that's all positive. Um, I've, been with Mitsubishi companies for almost 30 years now. Uh, a lot of different Mitsubishi companies out there, but uh, I've been with MHI, uh, particularly I've, I've been focused on MHI products just about my entire career. And uh, I, I, I really like MHI. I've, I've enjoyed working for them because uh, they're really a one of a kind company. Uh, being the largest manufacturer in Japan, uh, they have a, a portfolio of over 500 products and uh, just a wealth of technology and talent and, and innovation that uh, helps us uh, in where we are today, which is a pretty unique, interesting, and sometimes very strange uh, transition, particularly as it relates to the oil and gas industry. So the, the group I now head up, uh, the oil and gas division, uh, well, you know, we, we look at that portfolio of uh, products, 500 some products. We look at the technologies, the R&D group we have, and we try to integrate across that, across all the business lines, find synergies, and basically provide products and and solutions for our oil and gas customers. So that's what we do. Very interesting. Okay, thank you for that background, Mike. So um, I'm gonna start the interview here by, saying that we've heard a lot about decarbonizing the oil and gas sector. So what do you see as the most viable technologies at this stage? And and more specifically, what type of solutions is MHI working on? That's a great question. Uh, Viability uh, comes in in two flavors in my my view, Uh, technical viability and of course, commercial viability. Um, there are some some technical vibe, technically viable options out there right now, and and commercially, well, that's that's a whole second second line discussion. But um, you know, uh, as MHI, we we operate across the spectrum of oil, gas, and petrochemicals. Uh, we supply a lot of equipment and a lot of technology. And uh, you know, I would always say that the first thing that we really have to focus on as a as an industry is uh, improving our efficiency. You know, it, it's, there's a lot we can do. We, we have a lot of aging infrastructure. So uh, a, 
a low hanging fruit out there is always just energy efficiency improvements. Uh, we've done a number of projects like that in the oil, gas and petrochemical sector where we go in and, and just replace aging equipment, uh, compression technology, gas turbine technology, process technology, all have changed dramatically over the years. And while, you know, cost wise, it's sometimes it's hard to do, uh, you know, replace a piece of equipment that isn't broken, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that that immediate benefit and the immediate impact to your greenhouse gas emissions of any facility is going to going to be uh, improved by by simply looking internally at energy efficiencies. So you know, beyond that, that's that's sort of the, the initial thing that can be done today. No step change in technology. Just get out there and look at how to improve operations across the board. Um, you know, going beyond that, obviously, there's there's more serious work to be done. And in terms of, of what I think is viable technology, what I think most people are talking about today, um, CO2 capture. Yep, it's proven it, it can be done. Uh, MHI is uh, uh, is the world leader in, in carbon capture technology. We have the largest uh, carbon capture plant operating right here in, in Texas. Uh, it's pulling almost 5,000 tons per day of CO2 from the flue gas of the NRG uh, coal-fired power plant down in, uh, I think it's Alvin, Texas. Um, it's an amine-based process. It's, it's well proven. Um, when you look at that technology, then you, they start have to ask the, you, have, you have to ask the second question, which is, is it commercially viable? Well, commercial viability, I think, you know, that, that depends a lot on what the government plans to do. Um, the energy bill that's in Congress, uh, as in, uh, known mainly as uh, 45Q, uh, it offers opportunities for carbon capture and sequestration and EOR, enhanced oil recovery. Um, but again, at $35 a, a ton of carbon for EOR and 45 tons, I think, or maybe 50 tons for, for carbon capture, you know, that technology is, is right on the edge of, of even being economically viable. So MHI is continuing to improve that, uh, improve our, our efficiencies in what we do and trying to bring the price of, of carbon capture down. So mm -hmm. that's that's the one area. Um, you know, the other area people keep talking about is hydrogen. Uh, we're investing in a lot of new technologies in the hydrogen space. Hydrogen as a fuel is, is a very important factor and and one of the tools we'll have for decarbonizing the oil and gas industry in, in the future. Um, uh, our power group is, is active in that, very active. They, I think, are leading the area in, of hydrogen uh, combustion in their gas turbines. We're, we're combusting up to 30% by volume uh, hydrogen in our gas turbines today, and we're headed to 100% by mid-decade. Interesting. So I, I want to return to um, talking about carbon capture. And, and as you stated, it's it's not uh, really the most economically viable solution at this time. But specifically, what what can be done or what can companies do to lower the price point of this technology? Or do you see this as something that will just happen gradually over time? Um, yeah, that, that's that's a really a tough question. Um, I think incentives, government incentives are a big part of that for sure. Um, you know, and, and if you speak about the U.S. oil and gas industry and the U.S. economy in general, well, let's let's see what the current administration starts to think about that. Um, 
you know, you look elsewhere in the world and, and governments and countries look at, look at it differently. But uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot, the majority of the carbon producing countries out there have stated carbon goals. And uh, I think, you know, the, the easy way to get yourself to, to economic viability of CO2 capture is first incentivize it, make it happen that way, and then work on economies of scale and work on new technologies. Um, mm -hmm. As I said, our, our, our tried and true system is a amine based uh, design, but there are plenty of technologies out there. Uh, membrane technologies, direct air capture, there, there's a lot of technology that has to continue to be developed. And that's, that's the only way to get to economic viability for carbon capture. Um, mm -hmm. Sequestration is a, is a whole nother uh, issue and the utilization of CO2. So um, there's a lot of smart people out there uh, in our company and elsewhere trying to figure out different ways to actually utilize the CO2. So it's not just a waste product. Right, all right, exactly. So um, moving on from the carbon capture topic. So uh, talking about new technologies and new energies and, and energy carriers, um, let's talk about hydrogen, which you alluded to briefly earlier. So. Uh, looking at looking at um, well, looking at a combination of uh, carbon capture and hydrogen, it's been debated if blue hydrogen is uh, which uses carbon capture on um, the SMR process to to um, to generate uh, hydrogen with uh, low carbon hydrogen. So blue hydrogen, it's been debated if that's a realistic long term alternative to traditional fossil fuels. So what what role do you see blue hydrogen playing over the short and the long term? And do you think that's likely to be phased out once green hydrogen, which uses renewable uh, power to power electrolyzers to produce uh, zero emissions hydrogen, um, once that reaches sufficient capacity? What's your forecast for that? <laughs> well, Adrian, I believe in diversity. <laughs> that's an easy way to put it. Um, you know, there, there's blue hydrogen, there's green hydrogen, but uh, our company is focused on uh, pink hydrogen, turquoise hydrogen. There's there's probably a number of other ones I'm not even thinking of, but uh, to answer your direct question, I don't think blue hydrogen will be phased out anytime soon. Uh, blue hydrogen, by definition, uh, indicates that you're using natural gas to create hydrogen, but you are capturing the CO2 on the back end. So again, if it's economically viable, uh, which I think it ha we have to get to that point, then I see blue hydrogen being uh, a viable opportunity for, for the long haul, uh, mm -hmm. especially with, in this country with the amount of natural gas that's, that's available, um, the amount of, of jobs and, and uh, GDP that it creates. I don't see why we wouldn't utilize that as long as we can do it in an environmentally friendly manner. Mm -hmm. uh, green, green hydrogen is great. Um, uh, MHI as a company is investing in electrolyzer technology. Um, Right now, uh, you know, if you look at the at the energy consumption, electrolyzers are are very energy hungry too. So it takes quite a bit of green or renewable power to power those electrolyzers, along with the uh, ample water supply. So green hydrogen is great, and anywhere and everywhere we can do it, by all means, that's something we need to continue to focus on. But it, it can't, we can't get there alone with green hydrogen. I don't think that uh, that there's enough water and or electric uh, green electric power out there to be able to to meet the demand mm -hmm. um i alluded to pink 
turquoise, those are the two that come to my mind. Pink hydrogen is uh, from nuclear. Um, uh, we, we, MHI as a company, we do supply nuclear technology. We are working on light water reactors and, and different small reactors to, to try to bring the nuclear industry back to the forefront as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but the one that, the, the type of hydrogen that gets me the most excited right now, it, particularly for the oil and gas industry and particularly um, uh, some of the areas that I'm looking at and our group is looking at like LNG, um, decarbonizing LNG would be the turquoise hydrogen. Uh, mm -hmm. I, made, I made a couple investments. There's, there's plenty of ideas out there, but turquoise hydrogen is essentially uh, um, pyrolysis, methane pyrolysis, uh, a lot of different ways to do that as well. But uh, mm -hmm. the interesting benefits of that would be you're producing the hydrogen that you need as a fuel and the byproduct would be a solid carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, Technically, a ways to go on the viability of that commercially. Well, it starts to make more sense, you know, when you start thinking about not having to capture CO2 as a gas and sequester right. CO2 as a gas. Solid carbon as a waste product can be buried. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, solid carbon can be used as a as a saleable byproduct. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think they're all available out there. I don't think uh, blue hydrogen is going away. And again, I think. Uh, all those smart minds out there, we really have to think about all the all the ways that will get us there. Mm -hmm. well, it's definitely going to be a mix of solutions or it is a mix of solutions. And, uh, you know, as technology advances, it will be an uh, increasingly wider mix of solutions. I think we'll see. I agree. So um, again, with uh, on the hydrogen subject. So I'd like to briefly ask you about um, MHI's participation in the H2 at scale feasibility study um, from, from the US DOE uh, for scaling up hydrogen production uh, in use at the Port of Houston. Um, can you share some details of the project and, and maybe some of the benefits or learnings that um, are hoped to come out of it? Yeah, um, I, I'm not directly involved in the project, but I'm excited that our company is involved. Um, my understanding is it's a uh, it's a joint venture, a lot of, a lot of leading industry, uh, a lot of academia, University of Texas is there, DOE is involved, GTI is involved, uh, gas turbine uh, or gas technology institute. Um, so, you know, the whole goal is to try to build a, a scalable infrastructure, a structure that can, you know, serve the, the utility industry and the transportation industry. Um, I think the, the study is gonna be a three-year development plan. And then at the end of that three years, uh, they're going to be looking at, at uh, ways to deploy that that hydrogen uh, infrastructure into the port of Houston. So, um, yeah, um, Mitsubishi is involved in it primarily. We own uh, and operate a wind farm in North Texas. Mm -hmm. So we're going to provide a lot of operational data from the wind farm uh, from the from the green energy side. I know uh, Toyota is involved. Uh, I think of some of the other companies, Sempra, Shell, from the transportation uh, side of, of the, or sorry, the uh, logistical side of getting a pipeline and, and getting the trans, uh, the hydrogen transported. So um, it, it sounds really great. Um, you know, I think it's uh, just another example of, you know, looking to the future and, and seeing what it needs to be. And, um, you know, I, I guess 
if I could sum up this whole discussion, you know, I, I, I look at the energy transition as, uh, as a, a great challenge, a great opportunity, a little bit difficult uh, for, for the strategic decision makers out there. You know, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's tough to, to look at, at those long-term decisions that need to be made today. You know, the 10, 15 year out uh, decisions that you have to assume, you know, things like, you know, companies moving through a, a progression of leadership. You've got the leadership in, in Washington that's going to change maybe once or twice over that 10 to 15 year time. So it, it's, it is tough. It, it's really a tough decision to, to understand where the country needs to, to be in 10 to 15 years and make those tough decisions today. Um, the other the other factor I think that that uh, really will support the decarbonization effort is is uh, the financing and and the change in in thinking that needs to happen. Not you know I mean we're, we're talking about the oil and gas sector and a lot of our our decisions are, are driven by by P and L and shareholder stakeholder value and you know some of that has to be tempered by the idea that you know uh, the three to five year time horizon of paybacks on on decarbonization just aren't going to be there. It's, it's going to be a longer term solution and getting, you know, getting shareholders, getting CEOs of, of big companies to understand that and, and work within those, those confines are going to be critically important to making decarbonization happen. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, we'll be following these, uh, these developments in this, this energy transition over the, uh, over the years and over the uh, the long term and uh, the immediate future. So we appreciate um, your insights and we want to thank you for sharing these with our podcast audience. And we also want to thank our audience for listening. And um, we will talk to you again next week. All right. Thanks again, Adrian.